Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions and get educated about the financial world. It's time to retire smarter. Thanks for joining us on Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here alongside Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design. Kevin, hope you're feeling good this week. Walter, I'm great. I got an experience with my daughter. She just started in a local soccer league last Saturday, and I can't tell you how many kids were at this you know, park, uh, but it gave me the context for our show today. So I look forward <laughs> to sharing that. Oh, I can't wait to hear about this. I'm just picturing madness of just hundreds of kids running around. Is it one of those parks that's just got field after field after field, and you're just overwhelmed by the humanity that's out there? It was, yes. So our local school colors are red, white, and blue. And it was a sea of red, white, and blue. And they were all, I don't know, probably, I would say like 10 and under. So it gives you an idea, probably a couple hundred kids, it seemed like anyway, (laughs) maybe with parents, but a lot of people. I uh, actually, over the last couple of months, have been digitizing some of my dad's old you know, home videos. We still had them on some eight millimeter tape. And so I've been digitizing them and, you know, putting them on DVDs and just, you know, adding them to the cloud just so that we've got them in case the tapes, you know, melt one day or the player, the video camera that actually plays them, you know, stops working at some point. And it's funny because I came across a lot of soccer games from my youth and it was pretty funny to just watch the mass of people, you know, running around, bouncing off the ball, bouncing the ball off of each other. And then there's always the three or four kids just sort of standing there looking around and Brought back some good memories, that's for sure. So I look forward to uh, the financial connection on today's show. Speaking of which, we're continuing part two of our series about working on portfolios, what goes on behind the scenes, what the process is really all about, taking that look under the hood. Kevin, give us a a real quick recap of what inspired this two-part series on the podcast this time around and where are we headed on this episode? Yeah, sure. So part of our the regular work that we do here for clients is to go ahead and you know, basically monitor and tweak the investment portfolios as we need to over time. So a real high level of the process is you know, your financial plan, your retirement plan is the overarching goal for your investment portfolio. So that's step one. Step two is that we believe in using science-based evidence to construct your portfolio. And we really got into, I would say, asset allocation and talked about that and how asset allocation or the recipe is actually more important than the ingredients. And then we talked about just the process of going ahead and doing asset allocation work. So we got into the weeds a little bit there, but the key is I really wanted to explain to, to clients as well as to anybody that's listening what a process looks like to go ahead and do proper asset allocation work and do proper portfolio work. So it's, you know, you go down and you buy a car, it's it's easy to go ahead and smell I was going to say taste, touch, and feel, but you hopefully you're making a car at the dealership. <laughs> Might get in get trouble if you do that, Kevin. <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah, it's just strange. But anyway, it just makes it a little bit more concrete about you know what goes into it, what you need to be doing, what we're doing for our clients, or what you know there are some questions to ask your own financial advisor or somebody that you're considering working with what does their process look like so you're not going to you know become a financial advisor necessarily unless you have some dying passion to do so but at least it gives you an idea about what goes into the investment part of your planning all right i'm looking forward to diving in a little bit deeper into the conversation so let's get started 
All right. So I would go back and listen to the prior episode if you haven't already, even though I just did that recap. I think they do build upon one another, but there's going to be two things we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk a little bit more about asset allocation and types of asset allocation. And then I'm also going to talk about risk factors. And that's where kind of the soccer story came in. So I'll start there. So no particular order here. So I was at the soccer field. I mentioned it was red, white, and blue. And my daughter was born in, oldest daughter was born in 2013. And in her league, there were four different teams. So there was a red team, a white team, and a blue team. And those are colors, but there's one more team, Walter. So what color could that other team be? Red, white, and blue, you said? Yes. This is a money show. I'm going to say green. Uh, nice try. It was gray. Oh, uh, so just threw that out there. But there was four different colors. So all these kids, all these, and I think they were all born in 2013. So my daughter is five for another couple of weeks. There's some six-year-olds that were there, but basically everybody that was born in 2013. And you had all these kids, I don't know, probably maybe like nine or 10 and under. Um, so there's several soccer fields, just a sea of kids. So one sort was, well, hey, we're going to get all the kids born in 2013 and then put them in the league. And then another sort of all these kids was, hey, we're going to you know, break up these 2013 kids and then we're going to put them on these four teams. And what that made me think of when it comes to investing is something that we call these risk factors. And so uh, let me kind of explain what that means and hopefully bridge this gap here because people are probably saying, well, what the heck does that mean? So whenever you look at, say, I'll start easy for bonds. So whenever you think about you know, a return that you're going to get from owning a bond really can be distilled down into two different factors. So one is the term of the bond, whether it's a very short-term bond or a very long-term bond, or the credit quality of the bond. If it's a really, you know, say it's a U.S. government bond or FDIC-insured CD, or there's something called high-yield bonds, which is a nice marketing term for something that was previously known as a junk bond. So definitely a lot more risk for a high yield or junk bond. So you get the idea there. But what we can do is we can take bonds and we can sort them just like we sorted all the kids on the soccer field into 2013 birth year and then further onto the team. We can sort them into short term, long term, high quality or junk bonds and everything in between. And then we can go through basically a mathematical process. And whenever you go ahead and look at returns, say for a bond mutual fund, we can go ahead and get an idea of how much factor exposure that mutual fund has to, in the case of bonds, be it term or credit. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, hey, where do returns come from? Literally, this is where returns come from for owning bonds. They come from, you know, how long are you going to give somebody your money or how much risk are you going to go and take? So if you go down to the bank and you're getting a mortgage and say you don't have a 720 credit score, well, you're probably going to get charged a little bit higher interest rate. So you get the idea. We see that all the time. So whether we had varying interest rates or, you know, on your credit card or on your mortgage or your kids, you kind of get the idea about credit quality. It's pretty simple. The other thing within there 
mortgages are a good example too. But if you go out and you get a 30-year mortgage and you use the bank's money for 30 years, you're going to pay a little a bit higher interest rate than say a 15 or a 10-year mortgage. So when you look at those two factors within bonds, it's relatively easy to see. We have that experience borrowing money from a mortgage or what have you, both in terms of kind of how long we're going to borrow for and in terms of our credit worthiness. When you get into stocks, it's a little bit more well, it's a little hairier. So the first one, it's pretty easy. Kind of the granddaddy factor of them all is, well, hey, are you going to own stocks or not? So we call that the market factor. So the more money you put into stocks versus bonds, the more risk you're taking and you know, risk and return tend to be related. So there you go. But now as we go ahead and we sort again within stocks, you know, so again, if I use, go back to that analogy, we have all these, you know, call it a hundred kids that are on the field. We have all the kids born in 2013 that we've kind of sorted and identified. And then we've kind of further refined it and just happened to say, okay, you know, there's four teams and all of you get different color jerseys. So we went through a couple different sorts there. And really what financial researchers, what university professors have done over the time is basically go through the stock market and sorted it and identified these factors. And it's become very popular over the last five or so years. We've been doing this for Oh, as long as we've been in business now, but it's something that I learned about in grad school back oh, 20 years ago. And it's just like, it's finally catching on in, in common practice, but it's maybe caught on a little bit too much because I think there's some marketing hype around it too. But in general, the few key factors that are probably most universally agreed upon. So again, market factor, but size. So the smaller the stock, the riskier the stock, the smaller the company, the riskier the company. People kind of get that one. It's not too far removed from, you know, kind of the analogy that I gave over on the bond side of the equation. Larger companies, more pricing power, more control over their supply chain, you name it. But they just move around. They have a smaller wiggle factor, you know, all else being equal compared to small companies. So again, kind of a risk and return story there. Another sort is looking at value stocks compared to growth stocks. So the way that these academics and financial researchers have identified these, it's usually something related to price. So for example, you know, you could go ahead and have a dividend yield. So say, and people love dividends, but whenever you look at say a dividend compared to price, you know, the lower the price for the same dividend, the higher the yield. So, you know, that's a way to identify a value company price to cash flow, price to sales. It's all some sort of you know, ratio of price to some sort of accounting metric by and large. And then what these researchers do and says, well, hey, these ones that, you know, say maybe the top 30% that look really expensive on those different sorts that I just talked about for price compared to something, well, those are the growth stocks say the bottom 30% that look really like, hey, it's a good deal. Those are the value stocks. And then the stuff in the middle is kind of a blend, if you will. It's not getting a kind of a true characteristic. So these are the sorts that I was just thinking about on the soccer field. And whenever you look at that in terms of you know value versus growth, over time, studies would show that you can expect maybe about an extra percent, maybe a percent and a half or so you know, from owning these boring value stocks compared to growth stocks. So the question is why? You know, it could be a risk story. It could be that 
you know, the people that go bragging about their investments, you know, want to say that, hey, I own Netflix or Tesla or, you know, these big high flyers that everybody kind of pounds their chest on. But over time, tended not to be as great of an investment as, you know, these value stocks that are tend to be a little bit more boring and out of favor, but tend to be better investments. So those are kind of the factor of value and growth, if you will. Uh, and then lastly, another one that we believe in and believe that has credibility both here domestically as well as outside of the U.S. are just owning quality stocks. Sometimes people call them, you know, profitable stocks. These are companies that their current profitability is strong. They tend to have low leverage and not use a lot of debt to finance their operations. Their earnings stream tends to be more stable than other companies. Again, if I dive into the accounting world, they tend to have you know, smaller accruals than other companies. They tend to get paid you know, more quickly compared to other companies. These are all things of kind of a quality, a profitable company that go into it. So all that we're doing is similar to how my daughter's soccer team got divided up by age. And then on the Keller over Jersey, we're just basically sorting stocks in the market based on these different accounting metrics. And what studies have shown, and this has been going on for, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years now, is that you know certain stocks with these certain traits tend to do better over time than others. And that's all that these investing factors are, You know how you actually do it. Uh, you know, there's the devil is in the details, little things matter. But by owning certain stocks, by you know, favoring certain stocks or tilting your portfolio to certain stocks, you know, value stocks over growth stocks, owning a little bit more small company stocks than large, having more profitable and quality companies in there compared to those that aren't, over time tends to go ahead and add return to your portfolio, which, you know, hey, all else being equal, if we can take a similar amount of risk and get a higher return, who wouldn't want to do that? So all the work that you're describing here, a lot of financial firms will farm that out to other companies to do for them, correct? Whereas you guys are actually doing this in-house, making these analyses on a case-by-case basis for your clients and seeing what fits with their scenarios, their situations. You're helping not only to determine the different buckets or these different categories, the different teams, to use your daughter's soccer team analogy, but, but also who gets on the team. So yes, uh, in the sense that we are selecting the ingredients to go ahead and fulfill our asset allocation recipe that are consistent with the investing science uh, and you know basically our what our belief system about how markets work and about portfolios. So uh, we're not going out and we're not buying the individual stocks. We wouldn't do that. A topic for another day. But you know, buying individual stocks, you know forsakes diversification and we just don't believe in that and the evidence shows that that doesn't work really well but what we are doing is understanding how the underlying investments are constructed you know from these mutual fund companies who we are going ahead and slotting into our asset allocation recipe and again you have to understand the science i think to go ahead and really kind of carry the process that's where we started in the last episode talking about this investing process and if you don't understand the history and the science then you know frankly it's easy to get led astray into something that maybe sounds good but again when you kind of peel back the onion just like shrek did right walter i love it you yes. know you can see that the emperor didn't have any clothes or hey this sounds good but you know there's some really key things that the idea is missing and it's probably not going to work as well as what you're expecting so the investment stuff is 
again, it's pretty eggheady stuff, you know, full disclosure, you know, some people have a passion for this stuff, but the key is that there is a process that's here. So these investing factors, the way that we use them is we decide how much we want to go ahead and include into our investment recipe. And then what ingredients are most consistent with and most likely to best fulfill our investment recipe. And that's really how we use the factors. We're not going out and picking the individual stocks or sorting them, you know, how I talked about. Uh, just one more uh, clarification point, Kevin, is when we're looking at these different metrics that you've defined, you talked about the quality stocks and value versus growth stocks and smaller companies, and you start creating these different segments, these different buckets. Is Are you following, I know that you, you use the term science-based a lot in the show and, and for your philosophies, are you following some sort of preset metric to create these baskets for lack of a better term or you internally have kind of a line through just the work that you've done how are you determining you know what passes the bar to fit into these metrics and how have you defined these metrics yourself is this something that's more of a personal belief are you pulling this from outside resources and saying this is i believe in this predetermined theory from someone else just how have you kind of arrived to this method of financial planning because it is so different than a lot of other advisors so I guess let me answer that by giving an example. So I kind of paraphrase the question too. It's like, well, how is the research done? And then, you know, why does it end up in your portfolio that way? So I can go back and I can look at past patterns in stock prices and I could do a sort. So again, we've been talking about sorting, you know, kids by you know year of birth, then by further by Kellers. I can go back and sort stock returns on all kinds of different things. And I could say, well, hey, let, let me look at all the companies that start with a letter P versus the companies that start with a letter M. And the companies that start with a letter P, you know, they have better stock returns. So I'm just going to, let's just call it the P factor. And, you know, I'm going to own all these stocks that start with a letter P. Well, you may be able to find that in the data, but there's really, <laughs> that it's pretty illogical, right? There should be no reason why, you know, your company name is going to have anything to do with your performance in terms of your stock return to investors. So there, you got to be careful that there's not data mining, simply put. These ways that you go about defining value, for example, any of those different metrics that I mentioned, price to sales, price to cash flow, price to book value, sorting by dividend yield, you can use several different metrics and you you come up with kind of a similar result that these value stocks do tend to outperform. So the fact that it's not relying on one metric gives us pretty good you know, comfort that, hey, it's really there and it's not some sort of outlier. It's not, you know, kind of this P factor phenomenon and data mining that we talked about. Then, you know, what history has done and what financial researchers have done say, hey, look, we think we found something, you know, and we think that this is kind of the, the cause for it. And then they'll go and they'll do something what's called out of sample testing. So they'll go look at a different time period. You know, hey, does the factor show up during, you know, say the 30s and 40s and maybe not just in the 60s and 70s and keep repeating that process. And then and they'll say, well, hey, you know, let's not just look at the U.S., but let's go in international markets and look at, you know, Australia and Europe and Japan, and let's even look at emerging markets. You know, does it hold up there? And you find that for value stocks, it does. It holds up in in all those countries. For size, it does as well. So this out of sample testing, it passes. It, you know, it holds up in different markets, so on and so forth. So it's very robust. You know, the, again, these are kind of peer review papers that are put out there. It's just like you know, New England Journal of Medicine. It's running different trials, and there tends to be this 
you know, it's not we, uh, investing science and financial science is not like physics, which I used to teach. You know, <laughs> if I drop the, the microphone that I'm speaking into, you know, gravity tells me it's going to fall and hit the floor and it's probably not going to sound very good. Right. But financial science, it's a social science and it's not a hard science like physics is. So there's more uncertainty. People construct markets. And so this is kind of how we go about doing this science-based testing, if you will, in financial markets and in investing. But there's a lot that has been out there over it's, these factors have really proliferated over the last five or 10 years. And there's, I don't know, there's several hundred that have been written about. But a lot of times they're just kind of explaining something that's already out there or you know, adding it on to kind of the existing literature is not really additive. So those are some of the things that we kind of go through and do. But there's also some kind of connecting the these factors to economic theory, kind of a topic for the other day, another day. But there's some good underlying evidence about why this should work economically as well. So it's not just looking at prices, not just sorting something, but it's kind of having, you know, a theory as to you know, why this is, you know, the way it is and not just kind of finding something in past prices. But I don't know if that helped Walter or if I, <laughs> if I sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher there, but it, it all comes down to robustness and reliability. No, it is helpful. Although I love the image of the uh, Charlie Brown teacher with the, uh, the wah, 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 wah. we should redo your logo so that it's got that little like caption coming out the side of your, uh, out of your uh, head on the, on the podcast logo with the, you know, wah, 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 wah coming out of the side. I think that'd be good. Yeah. You know, I think whenever you look at investing in general, and again, working with real life clients for, for many years now, you need a good relationship with an advisor if you're working with an advisor and there's, you know, that person needs to earn your trust over time. And I think that's great. But when you can see the process as well and you can at least understand that there is a process, even if you don't understand all these little kind of nooks and crannies we're starting to get into in which there's literally a lot more of, but you know that there is a process, you know that it is built on science, you know that it works over time. Again, in the absence of having a crystal ball, I don't know what's better because nobody can go ahead and look into the crystal ball. They don't work and predict the future. And it sounds good. People certainly try to do all the time. You know, they say get in or get out of the market, buy, sell, whatever it may be. But the evidence shows that that just doesn't work. So you kind of come back to, well, what are we designed to do? And for us, you know, it just seemed logical. Again, it's kind of how my science-based mind works, I guess, as a former physics teacher. But, you know, you go to the science, you understand history, you understand these relationships. And, you know, it may not work in six months. It may not work in a year. It may not even work in six years. You know, and that's investing. But when you believe in something and the evidence supports it, a lot of times you have to have the discipline to do it. I'll give you a good example. So we talked about this value premium, very well documented. One of the, you know, probably the closest thing to gravity that we have in financial science. But it's been getting its pants beat off by growth over the last, you know, probably the last year and a half particularly, it's been pretty unique. But in general, the last decade, growth stocks have done better than value. And, and you can say, well, wait, you told me there's a value premium. And you can say over a 10-year period with about 90% confidence that there is going to be, and but there hasn't been. But when you start peeling back this onion a little bit more, again, we're 
regularly looking into the decisions that we've made. How did they pan out? You know, what do we need to do going forward? We talked about that process in more detail in the last episode that we were looking at this value premium and saying, what the heck is going on here? And even like our, our value fund just seemed to kind of being out of favor. And so we were asking, of course, the question why. And what's been interesting, at least over the last, say, year and a half from 2008 through mid-2019 is when you go and you look within say just the stock market in general and if you look at you know the largest a thousand stocks in the u.s well let me ask you a question walter i, I give you these softballs but i'm gonna have to start that, giving that you more streak of questions. softballs is gonna end one day <laughs> <laughs> so if you are an investor in a company would you prefer to invest in a company that has positive earnings or one that does not okay that is a softball i'll say positive earnings <laughs> it seems pretty <laughs> rational, right? Right. Well, so if you go back through uh, all the way through 1980, so through mid 2019, and certainly the companies may go ahead and go through periods of high levels of investment, but we're talking about pretty large publicly traded stocks in this example. And again, generally as investors, you know, we want to go ahead and earnings are going to go ahead and dictate the returns that we're going to get over time. But what's been happening recently is really unique. And when you look at, say, beginning of 18 through mid-2019, so those 18 months or so, companies with negative earnings and negative cash flows have been doing a lot better than companies that have earnings. And when you go back and look at that whole time period all the way back to 1980, on average, companies with negative cash flow lose about 5% per year to just those average 1,000 stocks, which is rational. You know, Some of those companies... You know, maybe Tesla goes ahead and kind of completely reinvents what uh, automobile driving is and they have massive, massive profits from it. You know, Amazon's a good example. You know, they weren't, you know, all that profitable for many, many years. They kept reinvesting. Then at some point they turned the corner and are, are very profitable. But how many Amazons are there? You know, there's one. And uh, Jeff mm -hmm. Bezos himself said, you know, hey, big companies typically hang around maybe 30 years. Amazon's no different. My job is just to try to extend that a little bit longer. And I think that was very humble of him to say, but also very insightful and something that a lot of investors just don't think about. But capitalism is fierce. And if there's high profit margins, that's going to induce competition. So, you know, and then you have a company like Netflix that is just, you know, piling and piling on more and more debt and saying, well, we, we need to build the platform. Well, now you have other competitors like Disney and Hulu and many, many others that are coming into this market that already have content and have a, a content library like Disney. It'll be interesting to see you know, how Netflix does. But you, know, you can't have companies that perpetually are not making money and have negative cash flow are borrowing or you know bringing on new equity shareholder money to go ahead and finance their operations and have that be a good investment over time you know the other interesting thing about these companies with negative earnings and negative cash flows doing better than companies with earnings and cash flows over the last 18 months or so is that over the last 30 years back to 1980 the only other time that that has happened was Walter you want to take a guess the uh probably the, another one of our crashes from the past because I feel like that's what you're setting us up for yeah I mean I, I don't want to pretend that I know what's going to happen here but you're right it was at the height of the tech bubble in 99 and 2000 and back then it was anything with a dot-com was kind of going gangbusters and those 
big old boring stodgy value companies that you know warren buffett like to invest in or those quality companies that have you know high profitability and steady earnings they were just out of favor because that was that was old economy it was that was boring about (laughs) yes they were completely boring you couldn't go to the golf course and brag to your golf buddies about you know hormel who makes spam i mean come on Guys, spam is where it's at, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so literally for the last, just round it up, call it 30 years. I mean, we're six months short of 30 years, but companies that you know have positive earnings and positive cash flows tend to return that to shareholders, and we do well as shareholders in that. Over the last 18 months, that has not been the case. So companies with no earnings and negative cash flows have been doing better. And I'd be happy <laughs> to have this recorded and come back and listen to this five years from now and just see how this plays out. But I'm going to keep with those stodgy value companies and those high quality companies that actually have positive earnings. So I kind of went off on a little tangent there, but it's a unique period. But my point being is, you know, you have to understand that, you know, there is a process or you should have a process. Let's back up. You better have a process. And then what the process is, you know, should be, in our opinion, relying upon science and then understanding some of that and knowing that, hey, you know, markets are noisy. It takes a while to go ahead and for things to play out. Markets are comprised of people. People tend to be irrational. We are comprised of emotions that justify how we're feeling with reason. It's just, you know, it's human beings. And so stuff happens in the short terms. They can overshoot, they can undershoot. But over time, these principles, these science-based principles that we believe in that, again, have been out there for many decades at this point, short of that crystal ball, we believe it's the best way. You mentioned the colors of your uh, the different teams that were at that soccer event uh, that your daughter participated in, the red, white, blue, and, and gray. Well, it's the same in the financial world. It's not black and white. There are uh, a lot of different uh, colors, a lot of variations that goes into the mix. There are a lot of gray areas in the financial world, and I know it's your job to kind of interpret and understand and navigate through all of those different moving parts in the best interest of your clients. And I guess that's my last question the day, given these last two episodes, Kevin, for somebody who listens to this podcast regularly, or even if they've just stumbled across these two episodes for the first time, my guess is that they're going to have a pretty high interest in making sure that their money lasts, that they're getting the most out of their dollars in their financial life. And as they get into retirement, uh, if they're listening to today's program, it's almost a guaranteed you know, element of interest in their lives. How will they see all of this work when they meet with you and your team at True Wealth Design? How involved are they in this level of process? If, if they don't want to get this heady with it, are you able to kind of make it easier to understand? I mean, how much do you want folks to be part of this process? How deep do you want to take them with their portfolios just so that they can have an, an expectation of what that would look like working with you? Well, let me answer this way. If my wife and I were clients going into a financial advisor's office and that financial advisor walked me through some detailed presentation on the stuff that we've talked about in the last two episodes, my wife would either be kicking me under the table saying, why the heck did you bring me here? (laughs) Or would have gotten up and walked out. So everybody's different. My wife just wants to know, hey, are we okay? Am I spending too much? Or, you know, hey, can we do these things? And then we have a lot of engineer clients that are here that want these details, maybe not to the extent that, you know, that that we actually go into, but they're process-oriented people and they want to understand the process. Some may even want to, you know, roll up their sleeves a little bit, but usually somebody hires us because they, they want to delegate this stuff. They want to be informed. 
but you know they don't want to go through uh, and get you know a graduate degree in in finance or investments or what have you and spend their retirement you know wondering if they just made a big mistake or not you know they hire somebody like us to do that so you have to communicate with people you know with what they need and what's the best way to do that well you ask them you know you kind of give them the high level do you have further questions? You know, is there anything that you want to talk about that I didn't cover? And usually when we do those little check-ins, you know, most clients say, you know, I'm good. Early in my career, I used to give a lot more. I don't know if I think with wisdom and experience, you just learn that, you know, that's not really what people want or need. But I think it's critical and absolutely critical that they do understand that there's a process because if it's just solely built on a relationship, you know, markets are going to do funny things over time. You know, 2008, 2009, when markets went down by half and you had no idea about the process that your advisor was going through or if there was even a process. Process. And, you know, at some point, the trust is going to get called into question and the client may make a bad decision and kind of tap out when they shouldn't. So, you know, you have to give people what they need. You know, something like this podcast, there's probably a lot of people that may not tune into it. Others that when they see it, you know, they may listen to the beginning or listen to the end and or whatever, but at least it's there. And if they want to consume it, then they can. If they want to better understand it, then they can. I think transparency is key. The fact that there is a process is it's a necessity. It's not important. It's a necessity. You can have a good looking portfolio or good results from a really stinky portfolio for a while. But, you know, over time, if you're doing, you know, dumb things in your portfolio, you're probably going to pay the price. The show name is Retire Smarter. The host's name is Kevin Krosky. He is the president and wealth advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you throughout Northeast Ohio with offices in Akron and in Canfield. If you are new to the show, glad that you have found us, and thanks for sticking with us and learning a little bit about planning, what it really looks like from a financial perspective, and how Kevin and his team at True Wealth Design go about it. If you'd like to set up time to talk a little bit further and get into some of the specifics about your particular situation or your particular plan, you've got some questions for Kevin and the team. A couple of ways to get in touch. You can give a call. 855-TWD-PLAN is the number. That's 855-893-7526. And always online at truewealthdesign.com. That's truewealthdesign.com. Check out the events tab on truewealthdesign.com and you can find out about upcoming workshops, get all the details and sign up right there on the site. We'll put a link in the description of today's show for where you can find that information. And you can also go to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button and schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced financial advisor with the True Wealth team to see if they might be able to help you understand your situation better and plan more thoroughly for your financial future. Kevin, thanks for this two-part series on the podcast here. Enjoy diving into the deep levels of learning about the planning process and just how much goes into it and enjoy the conversation with you. Likewise, Walter. I'll do my best to give you a good fastball rather than these softballs I've been <laughs> tossing to you. Okay? All right. I better, uh, I'm, I'm going to pull out my, uh, my books and my notes and study up before our next episode so I can be ready. <laughs> right. Thank you. We appreciate it. That's Kevin Krosky. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We hope you'll join us again next time on Retire Smart.
Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.